My first memory is probably as a kid, um, my mum and dad taking me, there was a petrol station near our house in Winnie Hill in Hollywood, and which is still there. And I remember walking through the park next to it and getting uh, an ice lolly. And that's probably one of my earliest memories. I was probably, if I was even three, maybe maybe, maybe I was still uh, two. But yeah, that would be my earliest memory. And what are we going for here? Like a Joker or like a Mr. Frosty or... I mean, that's a that's a big ask to try to get someone to remember. Uh, excuse me, see if you were too. What I what I slowly was that. <laughs> I am pretty sure because I was obsessed with them most of my childhood. It was a poly pineapple. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we need to do. Um, you know, way BuzzFeed has like all of those random quizzes where it's just like you could you know discover like what Kardashian you are or like some sort of random thing. We need to do like a Deal Farm sponsored one where it's like, what Deal Farm ice lolly are you? <laughs> yeah, no, I was a committed Polly Pineapple now most of my uh, my childhood. <laughs> That's so awesome. Give me so, a craving for one now. Actually, <laughs> I know, man. It actually would be pretty good. I'm a bit warm today, so. Yeah, just to, to give a bit of context for uh, the listeners who've just jumped in, thank you very much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. Sitting down today with the the one and only Connor Houston. Now, Connor is someone who I've only had the pleasure of getting to know recently through the Ireland funds, and I'm sure we'll end up talking about a bit about that later on. But you're not a person I know an awful lot about, but if you start to do even a little tiny bit of digging, you just get completely overwhelmed with all of these incredible things that you're a part of. So, I mean, just to quickly brush over a few of them, uh, you were your former lawyer and you went out on your own. You started your own business, which is really, really interesting. I'm sure we'll talk about that. I seem to get the impression that you're like a behind the scenes force in the political world you've set up this amazing initiative called connected citizen and uh just you know randomly no big deal you're also the governor of the irish times so there is an awful lot that's just three out of the many many strings to your bow and today i'm just really excited to kind of find out more find out what fuels you find out what you're passionate about and what you're trying to do uh, i've put out requests to a couple of people to suggest questions and uh someone said please bring up the fact that someday he's going to be the irish president so i'm just like <laughs> wow okay i mean there's there's a lot going on here but i guess like to start you know you you said you were kind of born and bred in hollywood what were those early sort of school years like what sort of things were you interested in and uh can they tell us anything about what came after Mm. Well, I lived in Hollywood until I was actually four. Um, and, you know, and then we moved to England. My dad um, worked for Bank of Ireland at that time and he got relocated to, to London in that would have been like the mid 80s. And uh, my family moved to London where we spent then pretty much all of my childhood and moved oh, wow. back here in 96 when I was 13. So my formative years, I suppose, were spent uh, very much growing up in Surrey in England. Um, so my early memories, really, I suppose, of, of, of being a very young child um, was, was my family. You know, we had a very close family, my grandparents, uh, my aunts and uncles. And um, I had a very, I suppose, idyllic um, childhood. And then when we moved to London, you know, very happy memories. We were very much involved in the London Irish community. We had wonderful neighbours and family friends who remain to this day. And, um, you know, I loved the schools I went to in England. Um, my primary school was actually behind my house that, that we lived in, in a little village called West Byfleet. And then I went to um, St. George's College in Weybridge. So I was, I suppose I had what, 
you could consider a perfect childhood, a very loving home with my parents and my brother and sister, uh, great friends. And then we would have come home uh, a few times a year to visit um, our family. Mm. And so those kind of early career aspirations, you know, did you do the whole, I want to be, you know, an astronaut, I want to be a fireman, I want to be a doctor, you know, what sort of things were you thinking? I think when I was probably primary school age, I probably wanted to be a teacher. I think I remember like playing games with friends and pretending to be a teacher. <laughs> um, and then I suppose probably by the time I was about 10 uh, and, and into my early teens, I was really, really convinced I was going to be an actor. Oh, really? And I remember, I, yeah, I used to sit up um, every year really late and watch the Oscars. And wow. I was just really interested in acting. And I was in lots of amateur dramatic stuff. And I was in school plays and all that. And so I was probably actually, if you'd met me as a teenager, <laughs> convinced I was going to be um, uh, an actor and a, hopefully an Oscar winning one um yeah so that was that was kind of my early career aspiration cool and like out of the the guys who were doing the the oscar circuit in those days who did you really look up to like this was there one person you were like oh man like someday i want to be just like boop um that's a really good question um yeah well i suppose i've always admired and until this day do uh, daniel day lewis mm. and i remember as a kid watching my left foot um, actually vividly remember we were at one of our um, family friends houses and um, they they were from Galway uh, lived around the conference I remember we were all around we watched it there and yeah I suppose Daniel Day-Lewis was probably a bit of a childhood hero of mine amazing and so how did the, the desire to be an actor transfer smoothly over into law <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it goes smoothly but um yeah, I suppose, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't remember there being a moment that there was kind of that, that conversion. Um, I, we have moved back uh, to, to Belfast, uh, back to Hollywood uh, in 1996, and I went to Lady in St. Patrick's College uh, in Belfast. And it was probably the first time I, I didn't do particularly well. Well, it's good. I didn't do badly either, but I, was, I wouldn't have I've, I've been strong academically. But mm. I really suppose... When I come back here, um, sort of, I'm going to Alan St. Patrick's, started doing well at school and started getting good grades. And um, I suppose by the time I was 16 and, and those sort of first early career decisions needed to be made, I was I was interested then in maybe doing something in business or in law. And then I went and work experience um, in the firm, actually, that I ended up working in um, with John J. Rice and Company. And I suppose that just ignited a, a, an interest and a passion in the law. And, I, you know, at that time, this was sort of 1998, 1999, the Human Rights Act, the Blair government were in power. And there was this sort of sense, I was really interested in, in this concept of rights for all and mm. how, um uh, we could empower individuals um, with with these inalienable rights, and I, I became very interested in the discipline, particularly not just of law but of, of human rights law. And um, that was kind of then what, what led me into to the pursuit of um, studying law at Queen's University, and then I did my masters in human rights law wow. between Queen's and NUI Galway, and um, and then I came back and qualified as a, a solicitor and then would have practiced very much in the field of criminal and human rights law um so it was very i suppose that those early um 
days of, of work experience and being around courts and being involved in, I was very, very lucky from a very young age to be involved in some really seminal and groundbreaking breaking criminal and human rights cases in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Would you say you have a strong sense or desire for justice? Absolutely. Um, and that remains um, to this day, uh, you know, one of the ways in which I suppose I wanted to live out that pursuit of justice was as a practicing lawyer. But mm. I would very much believe that a lot of the projects, a lot of the things that I'm involved in today are, are committed to that same principle of justice. I've always had a sense of um, fighting inequality of 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 the empowerment of 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 the individual and of people and of societies and of communities uh, and that's a theme that runs right through my career um how you help others i suppose what 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 drove me to law was how could i help uh, other people and i'm really proud that throughout my career as a solicitor i was able to help many individuals families communities um, in their pursuit of justice or to right a wrong um, and and that that was a huge privilege to be able to do that and you know I suppose in the many initiatives and things that I do now I um, remain committed to that sense of purpose that sense of trying to help people making an impact making a positive contribution to both individuals, but also to the wider society. Mm. And so what drove you out of law then, or out of at least the the mainstream practice of it? Mm, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't describe it as uh, that I was driven out if whatsoever. Um, I loved being a lawyer. I, you know, um, it was, uh, as it were, my first love in my career and, <laughs> and always will be. And uh, I often joke that I'm, I'm a recovering lawyer because I, I don't, I'm not sure you ever stop thinking like one um uh, or being like one but so it was more of a sense of um i suppose the, the privilege of the, the role i had was that you were getting a very unique perspective into the society in which you were a, a lawyer you, you got to see right under the, the bonnet uh, of the complexity of society and the challenges uh of, of people's lives and um i suppose that that created with me a sense of whilst I was I knew I was making an impact in the lives of the clients who were in in coming to me and that I was representing I was I was really interested in how to solve I suppose some of the the really big issues as to why people ended up particularly in the criminal justice system altogether and, and you know one of the defining moments that I remember was the flag protests in Belfast which was around six just over six years ago and I represented probably a dozen mainly young men, mainly young loyalist uh, men who had got caught up in, in various uh, public disorder offences. Mm. And the diktat at that time was that anybody involved in rioting was to receive a custodial sentence. So I uh, advanced the, the pleas on behalf of, I said, about a dozen clients in court, all of whom ended up going to, to prison. And that that was a very difficult time for me as a lawyer because um, whilst of course the actions of those involved in rioting are always to be condemned or probably sort of I was I was very concerned about what lay behind it, the 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 sense of inequality, particularly within yeah. the loyalist community, the 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 deprivation, the edu educational inequality, um 
the, the challenges around addiction. And I, I just became more and more concerned about that we weren't maybe fixing some of the problems as to why um, people were ending up in the criminal justice system. And I suppose actually taking that particular example, I was becoming more and more frustrated by the political context into which it seemed another generation were going to be condemned to repeat the mistakes of the past. So I suppose that was an epiphany for me to go, we have got to do something now to make sure that we don't repeat what has happened for um, generations here on this island. And we need to break the cycle of um, of sectarianism, of, of division and of inequality. So I, I, I suppose I wanted to try and address those, those questions and those issues. And I was very, very lucky in that as I started to articulate this sense of, I, I was getting a very unique perspective, literally, I suppose, as, as all defence lawyers do on, at the coalface yeah. of, of society. <laughs> Um, but I was also trying to figure out how we could um, could solve those problems uh, at a macro level. Uh, I was very fortunate to get a scholarship from the U.S. State Department to go to um, Boston and Washington, D.C., wow. where I had a life changing um opportunity to to think about these issues, to make to meet with people from from judges to lawmakers to uh, community activists. It was a really really humbling and incredible um perspective that i got and i suppose that trip made me realize yes um you know i i've I've been really lucky with the opportunities i've had to practice as a lawyer but there are skills and experiences and connections that i have that can maybe be used to try and solve some of these these bigger problems so that i suppose it's it's more a sense that i realized the skills and passions that i had could take me in a in a in a different direction um, and um, I, I made the choice then to leave practice, um, which was a which was a major life decision. Yeah. Um, and one, you know, I suppose it's that leaving the safety of the harbour, something I've worked very hard to achieve, and mm. uh, something I'm very proud, still very proud to to have been a solicitor, and and very grateful for the opportunities that I had in that role, but. It was just a sense of of purpose. It was a sense of following a passion, and um, I suppose the the choice I made was to be bold, which was well, I, I'd rather look back and say that I followed my heart, followed what I believed to be the right thing to do, than to have a regret. And uh, as the old cliche goes, I haven't looked back um, <laughs> since that, and it's been a incredible journey. It's it's definitely. To, to quote Robert Frost, been the, the road less travelled. Mm. Um, at times, I, I'm not sure there was a path at all, um, <laughs> but that's been the privilege because I suppose what I have been able to do is to create a, a life, uh, a, a way of being um, that is purpose-driven. So all of the things that I do in, in my life, I have either created or I have become involved in because I have a passion um or believe there is a purpose in getting involved in them so that that is um that is a great privilege to be able to say that in life and um yeah so there's always a point in these interviews where the conversation just gets completely blown open and there i i as like an interviewer like there's like four different directions that we could go each of them (laughs) i think are incredibly incredibly interesting but i suppose I'm going to try to take the path less traveled and I want to maybe just touch on something which may exist or may not exist. And this is myself, my own personal experience, really. I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting on you right now or deflecting, whatever the word is. 
how do you manage burnout and how do you manage taking care of yourself and not running too hard and heavy when you are so purpose-driven and when you do have such clear kind of objectives and goals and missions have you overdone it at different points in your life and if so how were you able to recover from that and set up kind of boundaries to uh, contain all of that purpose and passion and energy it's a great question and uh, if i'm honest with you it remains a a struggle because <laughs> you're you're absolutely right you know sometimes when you get caught up in a in a project or in a campaign or in something that you really believe strongly about it doesn't feel like work and you can be devoting a lot of not just time but a lot of thought and energy and and particularly i mean one of the things that I have learned is that when you're trying to enact or drive change in some way, there, it will meet a resistance. And that resistance can be very, very tough at times. Um, uh, and you need to have huge grit and perseverance and resilience in order to overcome that. Um, the, 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 lessons, the lesson that I have learned is that, of course, if you're not looking after yourself, doing it or you're overcommitting, uh, then your resilience level will drop and 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 and, and a vicious circle can begin. So mm. I, I I would freely admit that it's probably one of the things that I continue to have to be mindful of and to work on. I think you you the word you use there is absolutely perfect. It is it is about creating boundaries. And um, I think anybody who is self-employed or freelancing or has their own company or business. Um, will 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 tell you the same thing that it can be difficult to create those boundaries, um, because you you you're living and breathing what what you do. So I suppose I, I try to um make sure that the boundaries are there in terms of spending time with family and friends. I try uh to <laughs> to make sure I exercise at least uh, once a day and um travel i suppose travel is probably my real escapism where where you know you can get away and 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 free your mind and and let your your soul wander as it were um so that yeah i think i think it's it's a constant thing to be to be mindful of um uh, and it's i suppose an occupational hazard that you just have <laughs> to be aware of and being mindful of something is the first way to <laughs> to trying to to address it yeah look if there was a an old you know woman in, in belfast walking down the street and you know you're waiting for a bus and you're sitting there and you're chatting to her and she just asks you oh love you know what do you do for a living what what do you respond it's funny it's the question in in this podcast i was waiting for and also dreading because uh, <laughs> if i'm honest with you it's 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 probably the question uh i know it's a strange thing to say because i'm very proud of everything i do and i'm very proud of everything i achieve but it's actually a question i sometimes dread what, what is it that you do because i i do sometimes struggle to try and put myself into uh, any box and i think this is something probably in many aspects of my life i have struggled with um being put neatly into a, a, a box and um, sure. it was much easier when I was a lawyer to be like, I'm a lawyer I'm a solicitor. <laughs> what kind of law do you do criminal you know yeah, and people yeah, yeah. could then 
that puts you into that. There's that reference box. points. There's cultural kind of yeah, like established um, reference points is that we can kind of connect. The two and, and you also, I mean, following on actually from the last question as well, one of the, the, the biggest demons on my shoulder, uh, I would freely admit to, has been the imposter syndrome. You, you can sometimes feel when, when that question is asked, you don't have a clear answer that somehow mm. you're a fraud or somehow you've, you've been an imposter or somehow you're failing in the eyes of uh, the person who's asked you or, the, or, or society generally. And, and that has definitely been something that I've worked over. So I suppose in a sense now, I, I don't worry so much about that definitely because actually the people that I either, or either clients know what I do for them and know the value of it or the organizations that I am involved in know the value of what I bring to them and the passion that I have for their cause or ideals. So I, I suppose that's something I've definitely um, uh, got over as it were to a degree. Um, but to, to answer the question, I felt like I was a politician there, completely <laughs> avoiding it. I was um, like, mate, I have no idea what to even title this episode, Connor Houston. Uh, change well, maker. <laughs> I think, I think, well, change maker is a nice t- title. Um, you know, and I, I think for me, what binds, I suppose I have quite a unique existence in that I, you know, I have, there's almost two sides t- to me. There's, there's, a, there's a business side. Um, and then there's this, if you can, if we can call it sort of civic, maybe political or small P side. Yeah. And they coexist pretty happily together. And what binds them and what binds, I suppose, probably nearly everything I'm involved in is this sense of realizing the potential of this place. That is a central tenant of pretty much everything I do. I have always since uh, I was a child and this was home and then when we were away for here living in England this was home and then coming back in 1996 and this being being made my home mm. I have always chosen to stay here now I've been lucky to travel and I've studied away and I've worked away and whatever but this has always been home and there is something about this place that is like a magnet that always draws me back and it is for me what I would love to do, and I hope I do do through the, the various, through my own company, through um, the various boards and, and, and organizations I'm involved in. I hope that in some way I am helping to realize the enormous potential of Northern Ireland. And mm. for me, the again, what is at the heart of that is, of course, my family are here. I have nephews. I have goddaughters. I want them uh, to you know to have every opportunity imaginable uh, living here and that that guides my sort of thinking and, and my passions every day how do we realize the enormous potential and what is amazing about here and of course you have the privilege of seeing this in in developing this incredible podcast series it's the people mm. one of the things i don't think we appreciate enough is how many extraordinary people live amongst us and work amongst us and are doing things that are globally phenomenal. And it is such a special and unique place. There is such a resilience to the people here and such an incredible ambition. I mean, you just have to look at, you know, we can take it really any sector here, but look at look at what's happening, particularly in our local film industry. Look what's happening in our local tech, digital industry. It is phenomenal the talent it is phenomenal the vision it's phenomenal the ambition and that there's just something about this place i feel like it's almost like a charge running through my <laughs> my body uh, and that's what motivates me so 
I suppose through through you know, my own consultancy business, it's a leadership advisory consultancy, um, Houston Solutions. I'm really, really lucky to be effectively a private diplomat, a special advisor to some phenomenal leaders, both here and, and across this island. And that's a privilege to help them because uh, what is, uh, it's interesting when I look at my clients, they're a very diverse range of people from musicians to rugby players to tech entrepreneurs to <laughs> lawyers. Uh, but what unites them all is a sense of huge ambition and vision. And also all of them have a huge sense of making this place work of realizing the ambition of Northern Ireland. And that's a real privilege that it's almost finding the tribe of people who yeah. share your mission, uh, who ha are, are doing something in a different space or place than you are, but you share the same mission. And the, the, the greatest um, privilege I have is that all the people that are our clients are our friends. It's all based on a, a very strong relationship. And there's this lovely sense that what transcends it all is that by helping each other, by working with each other, um, by helping them to achieve whatever it is they're trying to do, we're actually also realizing the potential of, of this place. Um, and that that's, I suppose, the central tenant of, of why I do what I do. And that, that pays the bills. And, <laughs> but I also really love doing it. I mean, spending your day with, with visionaries and, and dreamers and people who work hard, who have perseverance, grit, resilience, you know, it, and ambition. It's such a privilege. And then that, you know, allows me then in the civic space to, to, to give and to, to give back in the things that I'm passionate about and, and whether that be through the work I do at you know, with Shout Out, which is a, an LGBT youth charity where we do workshops in every school across the island of Ireland. Wow. I mean, just last year, we, we reached over 15,000 uh, young people um, with anti-discrimination, anti-bullying workshops in Incredible. schools, uh, whether that be through the work I've done with setting up a, a chapter of the Ireland Funds in uh, Belfast, um, which is all about trying to get my generation, people that have been successful, people that have a huge love for this place, to come together and say, well, how can we give back? In in you know, philanthropy for me is about how you give back your time, your treasure, your talent, mm. and in encouraging that is is very important. And and then things like the Irish Times, the Irish Times being a governor is a huge privilege. It's about upholding the values of the Irish Times newspaper. It's it's one of the very few media groups left in the world that is actually owned by the people. I am wow. humbled and proud to be one of the trustees on behalf of the people, and and, and that's what you're there to do is uphold the values. What what do we expect of our media? We want to be informed we wanted to be trusted and you know, I'm, I'm really um, proud that the Irish Times lives up to that reputation and I'm also really proud to be speaking up and making sure the voice of this part of the island Northern Ireland is heard within that that group particularly at, 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 in the context of, of Brexit and in the context of um, you know debates around the constitutional future I think it's really important that we have a diversity of informed uh, uh, opinions and voices in that and um, in that regard. So, yeah. So I suppose it's 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 all about trying to make that contribution to um, the society and making sure this place realizes its its huge ambition. It's cool. I want to come back to so much of what you say, but I have a, a quick voice message that I'm going to play. It's a uh, it's a question sent in from. Uh, 
Simon Worthington, a really, really class guy. So let me know if you can hear this, okay? Hi, Connor. Considering that you're the governor of the Irish Times, one of the biggest media outlets on the island of Ireland, how important do you think that um, independent media is at this time? Um, well, thanks, Simon, for that great question. Um, I, I, I don't think there can be a more important time um, for that sense of independence. And um, I, I think when we talk about independence, that has many uh, facets. There's firstly the editorial independence of, of the Irish Times. And we're fortunate to have some of the finest writers, minds, opinion uh, formers in, in Ireland writing and uh, working for our uh, organisation. And um, there's also then, I suppose, the the importance of it being a newspaper, uh, a media organisation of record, it being a trusted uh, newspaper. The lovely thing when I ask people what they think of the Irish Times, number one word that always comes up is, I trust it. And I think that that is essential in this time, that people can go to a newspaper um, like the Irish Times and go, I trust that what this is, what they are saying is both informed, um, but it's also, um, you know, it, it can also be trusted. And, and that's something that I know as an organisation we're immensely proud of, whether you be in the trust, the board, uh, the management, or, or, or you, you, you work for the organisation. Uh, that, that is a unity of purpose. So um, it's incredibly important. And we're living in an age... Um, you know where that there is fake news post-truth these are real challenges and you know i i think it's where organizations institutions there say like the Argentines have to step up and defend um free speech have to defend truth have to defend uh you know um alternative opinions i mean one of the one of the things that i have said throughout my life, both as a lawyer, but also in the very specific work that I do, we need to ensure that we have a diversity of opinions. It's very easy in this world to surround yourself with like-minded people. Mm. One of the big downsides of social media uh, is that a lot of people are stuck in echo chambers. Yeah. Uh, and I think that one of the things that we, we, we all have to be mindful of, and I know something in the Irish Times is mindful of, is how to ensure that that diversity of opinions but the key being informed opinions yeah. uh, can can be shared and um so yeah it's a great yeah. question awesome so i mean this ties in quite nicely with um you mentioned the word earlier tribe and i actually love that word i think it's a fantastic mm-hmm. word and i'm a big fan of seth godin and he kind of defines tribe as people like us do things like this and so it can be positive it can be negative it can be neutral it can be your sewing club it could be politically charged it could be whatever it is and something i'm going to ask you like a, a very specific personal question like from me because i think it has universal application so i spend my life communicating with the tribe and the tribe is people who love Northern Ireland and believe that they have a better story to tell. Okay. So this is the tribe. The tribe is people who love Northern Ireland and we are excited for the future and we believe in the future and we want to push the country forward. But I'm also chronically aware that this is a small section of the population. This isn't everybody. Not everybody feels this way. Not everybody has the same passion and the same idea. And it's because there's different tribes, you know, we're insulated. Uh, we surround ourselves with certain people. And so 
my question is, how can I slash how can we connect this fantastic move of positivity and opportunity and entrepreneurship? How do we break out of our echo chamber and how can we connect with the rest of society? I think that is probably the question that defines my thinking over the last five years. Um, and it, it, it's, it's the question, it, it's, it's not an easy one to answer. <laughs> um, yeah, but right, I suppose <laughs> what I'll try to do is take you on, and it's, it's simply my perspective and, and a solution that I suppose I'm, I'm working on as to try to address it. The first thing to say is, I agree with you. I love the word tribe. And when, um, you know, a tribe can be your family, it can be your friends. I, I'm very, very blessed to be surrounded by an incredible family, incredible friends, incredible people who uh, mentor me, encourage me and support me. Um, the, 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 there is also then a sense of tribe. And I, I think this is where you'll get it, it, who share that, that mission or that, that sense of purpose. And, I have been, I, th I think that's probably the greatest thing I have learned in, in particular the last five years is the importance of that tribe. And, you know, when I left practice, I went to work uh, in a think tank, the Centre for Democracy and Peace Building. And, you know, that was a tribe um, of people who shared a sense uh, and, and shared a sense of purpose and belief in making a contribution to completing the peace process here in Northern Ireland. And I was very, very fortunate. They gave me an opportunity to be involved in a, a project around the EU referendum, which subsequently became known as, as Brexit. But, you know, there, there, there's also then the tribe of people that I've been fortunate to get to know through setting up, you know, and being involved in the Ireland Funds, that, that, that collective both here in Belfast, but that's part of a bigger tribe. We're one of 27 cities around the world who have a chapter, and it really is, uh, to quote our former chairman, a, a, a global Irish family, mm. uh, sharing a sense of, of love and belief in um, building that bridge uh, towards reconciliation, uh, and and um, a love for 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 this island and realizing its potential. So I think you know that sense of finding you put it out into the universe, the, the tribe will, will come to you. <laughs> yeah, is so yeah. important. It, it is a central tenant of, of everything I do and everything I, I have been fortunate to to be involved in or to have achieved is having that tribe. And people say, to you, "How did you get to do? Or how did this happen? Or how did you get to be involved in that?" It's always simple, you know, relationships with people equal the opportunities. It is working with that tribe of people will will take you to to the opportunity to the next stage. And um, I suppose my thinking on this um, really crystallized when I was asked to speak at uh, One Young World, which is the biggest global youth summit. Um, and uh, it took place in 2017 in Bogota, in Colombia. And um, I had if I'm the, right in saying it's the only event in the world other than the Olympics that has brought every single country together. Am I right? That, that's correct, incredible. which is quite an incredible feat. And, you know, they have been really fortunate to get councillors involved, such as um, former Irish President Mary Robinson, the late Kofi Annan, Justin Trudeau, wow. uh, even Meghan Markle. They're all One Young World ambassadors. So when I got the call to be asked to be a speaker in 2017, it was you know, a real Class. privilege uh, and a real opportunity. And uh, I, at that event, I suppose the, the theme of my speech was uh, it's all about relationships. So I talked about 
the context of Northern Ireland and how we had moved from being a, a society in conflict to a society emerging from conflict through building relationships and that the journey of building relationships had only just been got, begun, which is something I'm very passionate uh, about. But I suppose you can you can bring that down to, to the individual as well. It is all about relationships. It's about the relationships you form as to how you solve the problems that you want to, to, to solve, whether that be climate change, whether that be uh, tackling poverty, whether that be uh, solving the mental health crisis, getting the people who are passionate about that issue, getting together, sharing your ideas, creating a strategy, creating a vision and working on it collaboratively to solve the problem is the best chance you've got at achieving success. Mm. Uh, working with, with others who share your passion is is always going to be more likely to achieve success than sitting on your own trying yeah. to, to yeah. pick what can seem to be huge challenges and problems. So at, at One Young World, I launched Connected Citizens and Connected Citizens has been uh, a very iterative journey and process, but I suppose it's an attempt to try and distill through the various uh, things I've been involved in and the, you know, the privilege of getting to know a number of really extraordinary people throughout my life I was trying to draw those lessons together. And I shared at, at One Young World and, and it remains essential tenants of Connected Citizens, three things that I believe you need to achieve change. One is passion. And when you have that passion, you will then find the tribe of people who share that with you. You then work with that tribe to uh, create a vision. And that that requires huge courage because the, the world we live in now demands new models of cooperation, mm -hmm. but it also requires what I call profound collaboration. Um, and th what I mean by profound collaboration is that, I, I and I've seen this happen in so many things I, I've been involved with, when you truly can give up your idea and work with um, others and and have the courage that your idea may not be the, the, the result that emerges, you will achieve real collaboration because the, the sum of, of the many parts will be greater um, than, than the, the constituent parts. And I, I, I really believe in, in that power of collaboration mm. of people working together. I think if, if people enter in that, that spirit of cooperation they can achieve anything and the critical part of of connected is action what are you going to do to actually do something about it and you know, one of the things that we're seeing too much of is the, the keyboard warrior and whilst i think there's a space for <laughs> people campaigning and creating campaigns online really important and, and people articulating so i think it's also really important to try and find ways to to crystallize that into action and you know so for connected citizens we have been working um, I suppose there's two things. One is that, that the, the initiative itself, I'm, I've been building a, a collective of people who are interested in trying to drive change in this society, who are passionate about realising the potential, but who maybe have a passion in different areas, so whether it be mental health or environmental or community empowerment. And what, what I'm trying to do is build that, that network up so that we can then, as it were, have this uh, almost... Um, active citizen network that that can be brought to life so if you're a community organization uh dealing with addiction you have a network of people who share that passion who can bring their skills and experience to you and impact on your work and add value to your work so it's I, I, to put it in its simplest form i've always believed that everything we need to achieve um success in northern ireland is here mm -hmm. we've got the people we've got the ideas we've got the vision 
all we need to do is connect it together. So I suppose Connected Citizens is attempting to try and build that network um, uh, that will simply just allow people to connect vis-a-vis a passion and link them to uh, an organization that is already working in that space. I think one of the, the things that I've seen in a lot is very often there's an attempt to duplicate, very often there's an attempt to uh, start your, your, your own project to solve an issue when, for example, take something like addiction, there may be a community organization working a grassroots level trying to tackle that issue that if you were to bring your skills and experience to them you'd have value and, and traction to the work that they're already doing so i think it's very often how we promote that model of of collaboration so i'm trying to build an online platform i am building an online platform that will connect people with specific passions to say whether that's uh, civic participation political change climate change equality and diversity mental health tackling poverty etc with uh, groups, individuals, organizations who share that passion and letting them then collaboratively figure out what they can do together. So that's that's the macro level, mm. connecting what's here together. Because it's all, as I, I keep saying, it's all here. We just need to connect. <laughs> the second part then of connected citizens and the piece that I suppose um, that I'm interested in is using that philosophy of passion, act, vision and action, using that philosophy of a tribe of people, as you articulate, that can seem small, although I think it's actually much bigger than, than we appreciate. Connecting that like minded people to drive that more political change here is something that I'm particularly interested in. And so the part of Connected Citizens work has also been around trying to be a mediator, facilitator um, in the conversations about the future of Northern Ireland. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, whilst we don't necessarily want to turn this into a political uh, podcast, I think it's important to recognise that the context in which you know, everything is happening in Northern Ireland right now is in the context of both demographic change, the implications of Brexit, which are yet to be fully understood, and just, uh, I suppose, a, a changing world environment um, that, that you know, with the digital um, revolution that's happening um with with globalization with with changes in 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 terms of uh governments in in both um the uk and and ireland so i think change is coming um that that is inevitable but what i don't think is inevitable is that there is a specific outcome that that is inevitable and i think what we need to do now and what i'm interested in doing now is building that collective people in northern ireland who um i suppose to to, to quote the late Seamus Mallon, don't care what we call this place, they just want to call it home. <laughs> who just love this place, who just want what's best for their children and who are prepared to be pragmatic in what that looks like. So um, one of the things that I learned uh, in, in being involved in the EU Debate NI project that the Centre for Democracy and Peacebuilding ran was that and, and it was a very unique project in that we took a neutral stance in the referendum we were about ensuring there was a debate and ensuring there was an informed debate around the implications of brexit and northern ireland so i worked with both leave and remain sides of the house and one of the things that became very apparent to me early in that uh, process was 
the, the challenge that perhaps we were having the wrong debate, that a lot of the issues that were coming up that concerned people, which were absolute legitimate concerns, were not best dealt with in the question as to whether or not the United Kingdom should remain a member of the European Union. So I felt that from the very outset, the whole country was having the wrong conversation and the wrong debate um, in terms of whether on that binary question of whether we should remain a member of the European Union. There were many issues that were coming up, mm. Take it, whether it be immigration, whether it be the way in which um, um, you know, po poverty is intergenerational in some communities uh, across the UK. Th th those are very real issues and very real problems. But leaving the European Union respectfully would not have been the way to resolve that debate or those issues. There was a, a multitude of issues that needed to be resolved in other ways than a binary referendum. So I, I was always, I always felt that we were, as I say, that the, the premise of the whole thing w w was wrong. And I suppose the other lesson is when you ask a binary question, you'll get a binary answer. And wow. the last three years uh, has been a, a nearly four years has been a struggle to understand what it is that brexit is and what it is that the uk ultimately wants to achieve and of course we've seen the complexity of that particularly given the the um the good friday agreement which is effectively the constitution of northern ireland which um has has created a real challenge to how you disentangle the united kingdom um as an entity from the european union so that lesson or that perspective has really um, made me take a breath when it comes to conversations about the constitutional future of this place, because we mustn't rush to have either the wrong debate, the wrong conversation, or present a binary choice to people for something that is far from binary, which is far more complex. The issue of identity, the issue of constitutions, uh, where your rights are based, how how your democracy functions, how you raise taxes, who pays for things, all of these very complex issues, uh, I do not think are best addressed by a, a binary question being put. Now, I want to be very clear. I am not saying for one second that people shouldn't aspire and articulate for a United Ireland or to remain part of the United Kingdom. What I am trying to say is let's just be very clear in how we frame the conversation, frame the debate. So my starting point and what I am trying to do through Connected Citizens is to say, let's take a breath and let's accept that all options are on the table. And what do I mean by that? Well, everything from becoming, remaining part of a reimagined United Kingdom to status quo to United Ireland is on the table. And let's accept that nothing is um inevitable that that all the options are legitimate and we have a debate and conversation based on practicalities around that what improves your life so let's bring it down to look at things like health and education around what would build a sustainable economy about what we could do and for me the answer to a lot of this is it's already in front of us and it's called the the Belfast Good Friday agreement mm. the agreement is a document in my opinion it's a miracle and it's a document of genius. And what the agreement did, I am not necessarily obsessed with every word or in it, but what I do think is fundamental is the spirit and values of the agreement. And what the agreement did is it set out concepts such as reconciliation, mutual respect, trust. These are the basis and for me the only basis upon which we should be interested in having a future. And secondly, the agreement understood the importance of relationships that 
there was three sets of relationships, the relationship between the communities in Northern Ireland, North, South, and between Britain and Ireland. I still believe that that arithmetic is the best way for us to have a conversation about our future. So if you aspire to United Ireland, well, let's set out what does a, an all-Ireland um, uh, outcome look like? How do we imagine the possibility of real North-South cooperation? What is a, 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 a newly... Uh, constituted the United Kingdom looked like with Northern Ireland, you know, at, at the heart of it. What, what, what could, how could we reimagine our place within the United Kingdom? These are the kind of big vision questions we need to answer. And that the courage I, I would ask people to have is maybe we can do what we did with the agreement, and that is co-create a solution. Mm -hmm. So uh, I suppose I, I advocate for taking the three sets of relationships and seeing how we can take them to the next level. That to me is the kind of debate and conversation that we, we should be having. And so I suppose connected citizens trying to to to, to in in the sense of the future of place uh, provide a solution in this way. Firstly, by trying to make sure we're having the right conversation debate. And my contention is that that should be about all of our options for the future. So mm. everything is legitimate uh, and nothing is inevitable. The second is that we use the spirit and values of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement as the basis upon which we have those conversations. So ending sectarianism, reconciliation being at the heart of it, mutual respect and trust, they are the only ways that we, sh we should be moving forward. And we use the relationships that are already in the agreement and see how we can realise the full potential of them. We haven't begun to fully appreciate the potential of this place, both in, as its own entity, as its own state, as 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 an island and as 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 islands of Europe, mm. we haven't begun to imagine. And I would love to see Northern Ireland actually being a, a voice of leadership in terms not not being the you know as it were having to live with the consequences of what happens in London yeah. and Dublin, but actually having the ambition and vision to set the agenda of how we be that bridge between uh, Britain and Ireland. And and that, that that's my own personal view. So I think that trusted space for conversation, that big vision, and people working truly collaboratively to say, what is success? What kind of society do you want to be? What, what are the values of that society? They are much, in my opinion, better questions to ask. Uh, that will lead us to, I hope, much more pragmatic solutions and outcomes rather than trying to answer something in a purely binary way. Yeah, it's so interesting. I've, I mean, in this, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not really up to speed with much uh, of the legalities of anything or legal documents. You know, I've never read the Good Friday Agreement, but it's so interesting to hear you talk because I've never heard someone have a relationship with the Good Friday Agreement that is somewhat similar to Americans and their constitution. Does that make sense? Like it's very much it you, does, and it's you look at it yeah. as like this is the set of values, this is the set of principles, this is our mm -hmm. kind of anchoring point that we will go back to. And I think that's really fascinating because I've never ever considered that or even heard that I, before. I, I I I suppose I mean I've been accused. People have said you're obsessed with the agreement. Um, it happened 22 years ago. You know, <laughs> get over it. And I'm going well. Actually, and you know, this is this is of course as with all things that based on personal experience. You know, the the Good Friday Agreement happened when I was 15 years of age. A very formative time in life. I was making decisions about whether to stay here to go to university, etc. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I remember of that time 
was the enormous sense of possibility. And I accept that that for many people there were um, uh, things within the agreement that were very, very painful and very, very difficult um, to, to, to accept and to swallow at, at that time and, and for many people potentially continue to be so. But what I, I that doesn't take away from the the in my opinion the spirit and values of of the agreement and the importance of the agreement in creating a way in which we can have a conversation based on building relationships. Yeah. When we have made progress, it has been based on building relationships as the agreement imagined. When we have not made progress, it is because we are failing to build relationships. So. Wow. That is why I feel that my adult life um, uh, is, it's almost that life entwined with the agreement, watching the place that I call home, that I love, um, you know, know, improving, becoming better and better, realizing its potential. Still many challenges, but, you know, really uh, the sense of of resilience of the people, the sense of ambition of the people starting to come to life. Uh, really excites me and, and that's why for me it's not about now abandoning that agreement it's actually about saying it will be 25 years old in 2023 let's mm. use that as the opportunity to to reimagine it I mean to use the tech phrase let's create Good Friday Agreement 2.0 let's take <laughs> what's in it and refresh it yeah. we aren't doing enough on reconciliation we haven't even begun a mutual respect and trust in my opinion particularly in this political sphere we haven't ended sectarianism we haven't imagined what real north-south cooperation and real british-irish cooperation in the context of northern ireland might look like mm. let's let's be ambitious and let's imagine it and let's yeah. see what the, what the possibility of relationships can yeah. can take us in in that political space cool so moving into kind of more of the nuts and bolts and for the people listening and for myself of the actual kind of how to or what we can do, whether it's uh, in the line with this kind of vision or completely separately for our own creative endeavors or whatever, here's a, a familiar voice with a question for you. Could you share your insights on how to build meaningful and trusting relationships in the world of work? Um, Peter, um that's a great question. Um, I well, you know, I could answer it in one word. It's 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 simply relationships. It is um, about building uh, relationships of trust, relationships based on values. I look at the people in my life, many of whom have transcended the various parts of of my career and the various things I'm involved in. The reason that happens is because it's based on on a relationship. Uh, a shared vision, a shared passion, a shared interest. Um, and so for me, it's about finding those people that share those things and uh, um, valuing valuing them and them valuing you. Um, mm. I've, I've, I've always resisted the word networking. And in the business context, there's a lot of people, oh, you're a great networker, Connor. And I, I, I've never quite liked the word because it sounds to me very... <laughs> contrived or very transactional yeah. and I actually don't think I am a good networker because uh, yes I'm really uh, proud of the of the tribe of the network I have around me and the people in my life and the people who influence me and mentor me and and, and yeah, you, I, I value that but I see that very much as as being relationships based on friendship based on shared value shared passion shared interest rather than 
being something that's purely transactional. So I think that for me, um, it's it's <laughs> the cliche. It's all about relationships. It's yeah. about finding the people who share your passion, share your values, and and you know, like all relationships, working on them, um, uh, and and exploring the possibility of those relationships too. Um, you know, I have been very fortunate um, to give one example. Um, I know Gareth Quinn, former podcast contributor, who <laughs> uh, founder of Digital DNA. Um, I love what Gareth was doing, wanted to get involved in supporting Digital DNA, so did that kind of, you know, uh, voluntarily just love going to Digital DNA, loved being, being there. And you know, through having conversations with Gareth and believing in what he was trying to do, we ended up designing a, a program which I'm proud to have delivered for them over a couple of years called Digital Futures, which was all around getting young people, particularly from marginalized backgrounds, and getting them to come along to Digital DNA to meet with world-leading tech CEOs and companies and immersing them in, in the opportunities of the tech digital sector. That was all came out of a relationship, mm. out of a shared value, out of a shared belief. Um, you know, I have no tech, digital expertise, <laughs> training, qualifications, uh, definitely one where I was uh, imposter syndrome. But w what I shared with Gareth was a sense that this uh, digital DNA, which was about you know, creating an ecosystem here of, of, for the tech digital community that would drive change and drive prosperity. Uh, I got that. I see how that benefits. And I wanted to see what I could do to, to add value and benefit that. So it's, it's, it's an example of um relationship building and sharing values and continuously having those conversations and working together and gareth and i continue to this day to have conversations and plot and scheme for things <laughs> and um that's that's so important and peter peter ecker is somebody who personally asked the question is a great example of it. i've known peter for six seven years now we've been involved in various initiatives and projects together mm. sharing our sense of, of purpose and trying to realize the potential of northern ireland and 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 bringing projects and and events and uh, schemes to life and yeah so just awesome. keep building relationships yeah uh funny you brought him up gareth actually has has written in a question here <laughs> and uh it's a really great one how do you come to that moment where you decide to start something brand new Hmm. Um, it's a great question, and it's a great question coming from, from Gareth, who, like myself, has has started many things brand new. Um, yeah, I, th I, I, I suppose it goes back to that arithmetic of connected citizens of passion, vision, action. Um, I tend to find that that when something brand new comes into my life, it tends to be because I have been thinking or talking about something I'm interested or passionate about and it brings you into contact with another person or an organization that shares that passion and, and that tends to then create the, the, the spark. I mean, one of the things that I've been working on for the last couple of years that I'm really proud of um, came out of, 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 of literally an idea that sparked into my head and it was when I was at One Young World in Colombia, uh, I was sitting on, on the stage 3,000 young people from every country in the world sitting there, had the huge privilege of sharing that stage with the late Kofi Annan and uh, President Santos of Colombia, two Nobel Peace Prize winners, talking about my home uh, on the world stage um, and being incredibly proud. And when I 
was sitting there before I got up to speak I looked out and I had this vision imagine this being in Belfast imagine we brought young people from every country in the world and all these great international minds and, uh, and, and activists together in Belfast imagine we could do that and when I got back I began to think about what what one young world Belfast might look like wow. and as I started having that conversation this incredible tribe of people came around from from the arts from business um and from tourism hospitality from local government etc and we began to devise what that might look like and you know, really excitingly Belfast is in with a real shot of hosting one young world in Incredible. 2023 and that came from you know I suppose a passion being an environment that I felt uh, an energy and a tribe of people. And also, I suppose, a sense of vision that, well, you know, I uh, the theme of One Young World Belfast is resilient city, global ambition, which I think mm. just perfectly encapsulates nice where we're at today, which is we are resilient people. Uh, I think we're very hard on ourselves. I don't think we give ourselves enough credit for where we are and and, and how well we, we, we're going to do. But there is an enormous ambition. And yeah. that is something that really excites me. So I think that what better way to mark the 25th anniversary of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, what better way to mark the, the 2020s in Northern <laughs> Ireland than to bring the world here and to say we're a resilient people with global ambition and we're, 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 we're proud to tell our story yeah. and we're looking out to the world, not not in on ourselves. And that, that, that all came from, you know, just a, an idea that popped into my head that, by sharing it with others, brought it to life. And there's been an incredible uh, group of people involved in putting that bit together and, and, and hosting the delegation from One Young World when they came here a couple of months ago. So um, keep everything crossed, but that, 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 that's <laughs> the kind of thing you can do when, when, when you follow your passion. So good. So just very briefly, I kind of want to touch on one thing before moving into the stock questions and, and landing the plane, but... Um, you know, there's been two kind of key moments in your life that you have left. Um, so, you know, you mentioned moving to London when you were younger and you mentioned an experience where you went to Boston and D.C. And what was interesting about that was, you know, you mentioned your connection to the London Irish community. And then you obviously mentioned the, the connection to the Ireland Fund. And I'm just curious, how important has it been for you to leave the island to gain important perspective on what needs to be done yeah it's a, i think it's 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 incredibly important when you come from somewhere that is small whether that be a village or town or you know the island of ireland is a small island in the context Absolutely. Of, of the world I think it's always important um, and liberating to travel. Travel brings you perspective. And then I suppose it's, it goes back to why I want to bring one young world here. Let's bring the world here. Let's enrich ourselves mm. with, with that, the complexity and beauty and diversity of this world. And also the, the beauty, uh, showcase the beauty of this place. Um, and I think that, you know, so that I think that perspective is, is incredibly important Um but it's interesting because you're right, there is that invisible red thread that weaves throughout my life, which is that diaspora, that Irish diaspora 
uh, in the widest sense of the word, uh, Irish, um, that that has always been very, very important to me and continues to be very important to me. Um, and, and one of the reasons that I absolutely love being involved with the, the Ireland Funds, which, as I say, is, is like a global Irish family. And I think it's because there is this sense that um, when you come from, from somewhere so small, there's a responsibility there's deep connections. I think one of the things uh, coming from this island gives us a real sense of of family, of community, of mm. being connected. I mean, Heaney writes a lot about this connection with with the earth. I think that's something that the Irish um, have long appreciated and long shared. And there is something about um, being Irish that I love in that when you meet a fellow Irish person somewhere else in the world, there is that connection. And yeah. I think it, it is in almost that poetic way, a connection to language, to the to the people, to the community, to the mm. tribe, to the land <laughs> that is very important. And I think it's something in, in the world right now we should be as an island very proud of. It's something that we should never lose. In fact, it's something we should be working very hard on is to, particularly now we're in this digital age and this connected age, how we really engage and connect with our uh, global Irish family. Um, it's never been more important. And it's why I suppose Ireland is uh, rightly uh, working hard to try and secure a seat on the UN Security Council mm. uh, within the next year. Um, because I think that message to the world of, yes, you can be a small island and with a very complex history and dare I say a complex constitutional arrangement <laughs> but that doesn't mean that you can't um, give hope to the world that you can't understand responsibility as a small island to give back to the world and share that message and to share that sense of of, of community and yeah. and and pride yeah so uh, shifting gears into kind of the the stock questions the questions we ask everybody what's your greatest success so far it's a very um difficult one because it's 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 subjective isn't it um, <laughs> and it depends what success means i mean uh, my my greatest success i think is the relationships i have in my life i look at the the relationship i have with my family with with friends right around the world um, and with this wonderful tribe of people that I'm really privileged and blessed to know from a diverse range of backgrounds and places and perspectives and, you know, different uh, achievements in terms of their own careers. I think it's that, that the relationships I enjoy, I, mm. I, 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 I'm really privileged i sometimes look and go how on earth did it, did it happen that i got to have all these incredible people in my life and uh, around me and um i consider that to be probably the thing i'm most proud of um and what i would define as success it's the it's the people that are in my life and around me and um that's to me how i measure success um that, you know there are other moments in life i could have you know, I remember when I was 17, writing in my journal how much I dreamt of being a lawyer. It was a very proud moment when I stood in the high court with mum and dad mm. becoming a solicitor in front of our chief justice. That was a proud moment in their yeah. career. You know, standing on the stage at One Young World was a proud moment. 
but there's lots of that. And of course, some of the successes are the quiet ones, the ones that you know you wouldn't share apart. They're just things where you you hope that by uh, an act that you did, you made a difference to someone's someone's life, and that that's the measure, I suppose, of success yeah. as well. So, but but to answer it, uh, it's it's relationships. So good. Uh, so flip side of the previous question, Connor, how about the the greatest challenge you've experienced so far? And if you don't mind sharing, how are we able to overcome it? The greatest challenge I've had to overcome is probably my own self-doubt mm. um, and my own, you, everyone has their, their struggles and their demons. Um, I think that I am probably my harshest critic I have struggled at times, um, probably to the point of, of being depressed that, that you know I'm not good enough, that I'm failing, that I'm letting people down. So I think the, the, the greatest challenge I've overcome is is probably, and, and you know this would go back obviously to as well to coming out as being gay. That 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 was a, a struggle for me at one time. Think of all of those things, that, that, that sense of overcoming your own obstacles, your own hurdles that you put up. And I think that's probably one of the challenges. But I've been very lucky in life in that, um, you know, I have incredible family, friends. I've had incredible opportunities. So when I compare to some of the obstacles that people have to face in terms of adversity and something in their childhood, in their upbringing, in, in being denied opportunities, um, in, in health, et cetera, I'm very, very lucky. Mm. If you could take anyone from Northern Ireland out for a coffee or a pint, who would you take, where would you take them and why? It's a really good question. Um, the person I would love to, in a sort of uh, imaginary and appropriate way, would be to have taken someone like John Hume uh, out. Who I, I I got to meet him a couple of times when I was mm. younger, but I never would claim to have known him. Um, but always admired his courage and tenacity as a leader and his vision. And I suppose I'd love to take him uh, down to the Dirty Duck in Hollywood and <laughs> and have a chat with him there about um, you know the the decisions he made and how he summoned the courage to make those decisions because I think history will rightly judge him as as one of the great Irishmen of his um, mm. of this generation. It's great. Connor, just one final question from me, and it's the question that we always end on, and it's very simply this. If we could go back in some sort of a time machine to, say, an 18-year-old version, an 18-year-old Connor, and you had a few minutes of his time, what sort of advice would you give him? I would, I would tell him that you have been given a voice and, and the, the feelings and thoughts you have, express them, don't hold back. I've definitely in my life been guilty of procrastinating, of holding myself back, of self-doubt, as I talked about. I think I just tell him 
that there's that lovely purity to being 18 and that lovely clarity mm. to, to life that you have at 18 that I would just tell him to, to speak up and speak out and, and, and don't, don't hesitate. Um, I'd also tell him to probably be a bit more gentle on himself, uh, to take a breath every now and again. Um, and, um, yeah, I probably just tell him to be a lot kinder on himself. Amazing. Well, Connor, thank you for being so kind today and so generous sharing everything that you did. I, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity, Matt. It's been a privilege. Thank you so much. No problem at all. And thank you very much for listening. Thanks for making it all the way through to the end. If you would like to find out and discover over 100 incredible interviews with interesting people from Northern Ireland, just like this one you've heard with Connor, I uh, can recommend you heading to bestofbelfast.org. You can find photos and links of every single person we've interviewed. And other than that, 